So, here's the plan for the next five weeks or so. It's good to have you here. Um, the next five weeks, we are going to take some time and walk through um, what I would consider my favorite book in the Bible, the Old Testament prophetic book of Jonah. And I think it's gonna be a really great time over the next five weeks as we look at this uh, kind of in our context and some of the moving pieces to this book. But I think probably one of the best ways, and so we'll do this in round tables, we'll have some coffee, uh, try and create a setting here just to kind of connect with each other. But one of the things uh, we'd like to do to kind of kick this off is to take some time and actually get a bit of a primer and a foundation and an understanding of this Old Testament book. And so with that, if you want to turn towards the screens, we're going to get us going, okay? So check this out. The Book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet, rather it's a story about a prophet a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters one and three telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagan's humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. 
So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides and they end up fearing the God of Israel and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him. And he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now his sermon is very short and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. 
He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God again asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. All right, so that's like, brothers and sisters, that is like a fire hose, okay? Um, and the goal is there's no test. But I think for some of us, and this is why the, the book of Old Testament book of Jonah is actually my favorite in the Old Testament canon, because, gosh, we need to reclaim this a bit from our moralized kind of children's stories. Anybody with me? Anybody grow up on Veggie Tales? right? There's one linear kind of goal with these stories that we tell of Jonah with kids. It's what? Jonah disobeyed, he was given a second chance, and all of Nineveh was saved and everybody claps their hands, right? And here's the thing, that is actually not what God is trying to teach us through this story. Is it good that a city turned to God? Sure, we'll talk about that. Fine, great. But the story more has to do with you and me. And so there's a sense of like reclaiming this from some of the things that we've been engineered. Um, for some of us growing up in a kind of maybe a moralistic teaching and a framework of this book, if you, you actually engage this and we engage this together, we begin to see that there's something deep and beautiful and profound and actually really challenging for us as a way in which to engage it and learn from it. So, I put it like this, uh, and this was a guy named Tim Mackey, the Bible Project. I think there's pages there for you of, a, of kind of the poster that they did. You can take one of those if you want a kind of a snapshot of that. Uh, Tim has been very influential in my understanding of Jonah, though this has been a journey for me. I taught through this book 
back in the Royal View days, whoa, back in the day, um, about 10 or 12 years ago, but uh, a lot of this is uh, due to a guy named Tim Mackey and some other theologians that make sure to let you guys know about. But one of the things that we're confronted with when we read this little short story, and the goal for today is actually just to give you a little bit of a foundation, and then we're actually in our tables going to do a radical subversive thing. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read the Bible right? Like, think about your church experiences and the call to kind of publicly read scripture. When do we ever really do that? Never. We're actually going to read the scriptures in a couple minutes. But with that said, catch with me, Jonah, in a sense, the story, the short story itself is a microcosm of the beauty and complexity of the Bible. Because It represents, in some ways, some of the common challenges that we face when we actually come to the Bible. For most of us, especially because you've been shaped in a rational Western mindset, is you want to ask the question about Jonah, is it literal? This is what we do as Western people. Did this actually happen? And I want to push the brakes on you on this a little bit, because I'm like this too. Like, did this actually happen? To let you know that, when, th- again, this is an exercise in reading the scriptures properly, and especially um, kind of the literary devices that are used in the Hebrew context. That's not the point. The point is not whether Jonah went into a fish and got spit out. Actually, you want to know, is this, this is so funny, and how we actually reclaim from our childhood. You want to know how many verses in all of the four chapters of Jonah it talks about the fish? Two verses. The book, the story, the short story is not about a fish. It really, like the fish is not just secondary, it's actually down the ladder. And some of you are like, my whole childhood is ruined. I'm sorry. It's actually more beautiful than some story about a fish. It's actually way, way better than that. But not only that, when we think about kind of, is this literal literal or not, that's not the point. The point is not did this actually happen? Um, you know that Jesus told parables. Do you know this? A score of parables Jesus told in his ministry and his teaching. And we don't go, well, was there actually one day when there was a guy who went to a field and buried treasure and like the story unfolds? We don't care if that happened literally. We know that Jesus' parables are trying to teach us something collectively. Are you with me? There's a bigger story at hand than, hey, did this actually happen? Now, there are historical accounts, and I don't even know if this is true, but I saw on my Twitter feed, even recently, there was somebody that was swallowed by a big fish, and they were spit out, and this has happened in, the, in history, but again, that's not the point. The point is this. Some of you will love the next bunch of weeks as we walk through this, because you may not fully understand when you read this in English that this is something called satire. Who would have thought that the boring old Bible would actually have humor in it? But the writer of Jonah, actually the way that they comprise this text in the story, we miss it in English because we don't kind of have the Hebrew kind of background. And so over the next four Sundays, as we talk about this, we will point to the moments and times where there should be a laugh track because literally this is what the writer wants us to do. The writer wants us to feel in our bones the irony. Anybody into Saturday Night Live? Anybody? This is what Jonah is. We don't, we don't always see it like this. But one thing satire does, whether you agree with the onion or the Babylon Bee or whatever, is it uses humor to what? To confront the reader with some sort of truth. 
This is what Jonah does. It, we will experience at times kind of the laugh track in the back as the writer tries to get us to see um, this is not just about some far-off prophet back in the day. This actually, as you saw in the primer video, this actually has to do with us. So before we read it, before we kind of get into the text, there are a few key players that you need to know about. A guy named Jonah, who was the first prophet in Israel not just to go to the people of God. If you know the prophetic call in the Old Testament is the prophets always went to Israel and called them back to be faithful to God. What should flip it on its head and like open our eyes right at the beginning is that this prophet of Israel is not a very good dude, and it said in the intro video one is because he almost came with like a false message to Jeroboam II. That's another story at another time, but was kind of off a little. Like we think Jonah is like this, sometimes this hero who went to Nineveh. The writer is trying to get us to see that in, in a sense, Jonah is the anti-hero. What's funny, and we'll get into this next week, his name literally is translated dove, Jonah's name, or son of peace. And yet the whole irony, the satire and the whole thing is he acts completely opposite to the name that he's called. And so Jonah is not a very good dude. You know, sometimes we can put Bible characters on pedestals. This dude, we'll see as he kind of gets into this whole story and into this journey towards Nineveh, is not a very good guy. But it should also be a reminder that this is actually the first prophet that's sent to people outside of the covenant people of God. And so it's a story filled with all sorts of character, characters in it that actually do the opposite of what you think they should do. Jonah does the opposite. As a faithful kind of prophet, he does the opposite. Then you have this city called Nineveh. Nineveh at the time was the capital of Assyria. It was the second biggest city in the ancient world, second only to the big, now we use this as a metaphor as well, now in our day, the city of Babylon. The, the legend goes of Nineveh that you could actually ride on chariots three beside each other around the city. Its walls were fortified from its enemies. It was like, some think it was like 200 to 600,000 people in that day, which is like an ancient megacity. You know, it was more like villages and towns in that day. And the legend of Nineveh was is that it took three days to get across Nineveh. The Assyrians... The Assyrians were these people that waged war three times against Israel. They were the most violent, at times known as the most violent people on the planet. When they would wage war against people, they would pillage and do all sorts of awful things to their women. Welcome to church. So glad you came. Right? This is the Bible. This is the context. If the woman, I got to be careful, there's kids here, so I'll take this out of the notes, but they did awful things to pregnant women when they would kind of come into a city and besiege it. Uh, they would do awful things to children as well. A little edit in the notes knowing now that our kids are in with us. You picking up what I'm putting down? They would literally take people outside of the city. They would put fish hooks in their mouths and drag them outside of the cities that they would encounter. Um, the father of the Assyrians was known as this guy named Nimrod. Like that's enough information for you. Make sense? These were the people that Jonah was called to. And where does he go? You will learn very quickly that instead of going to Nineveh, which is like modern-day Iraq now, kind of in the ancient Near East, he goes to a city called Tarshish. Now, the irony in this and the beauty in this is that Tarshish, if you're thinking Nineveh, Nineveh is like as far east as you can go 
in that world. And Jonah instead, and you'll read it here in a minute, hops on a boat and he goes to Tarshish. Now, where's Tarshish? Most people think it's in modern-day Spain, right? No judgment on Jonah a little bit. Like, you have, you have Nineveh in the Middle East, in the middle of the desert, and, like, these vile kind of, this community that was known as kind of vile. Or where are you going? To Tarshish, or are you going to Nineveh? Like, there should be no judgment here on our end. Actually, the Bible talks, Solomon talks about Tarshish, that from Tarshish, Solomon received ivory, apes, and peacocks. Where are you going? To the people who literally hook people when, in the mouth when they conquer them. Are you going to where the peacocks are, right? Anybody? There's no, I think, maybe a little less judgment on this guy named Jonah. Because I would probably be going to Tarshish too when you think about Spain, right? And so let's be careful here not to pass judgment. Because one of the things this book, if it does its job, is to confront us as a community. You know, oftentimes we, we distill it down and we boil it down to that Jonah was given a second chance. He goes and tells Nineveh to repent, and they do it. What's fascinating in this is you literally get at the end of the book that a whole entire city turns their hearts and their lives to God. And what does Jonah do? You'd think he'd celebrate, right? I'm the prophet of God sent to a different kind of people. And though I got a little off track on my way to Tarshish, here I go to these people. I I give this kind of sermon to them. They repent. They turn to God. At the end of the story, Jonah's actually sitting under a plant, and he is PO'd at God. He's mad. He's sitting under a plant, furious with God. The irony in this story is he's furious with God that God would actually love his enemies. Interestingly, this is not as much about an entire city turning to God. It's about, and when we read this, you should dive into it with this perspective. It's about the heart of the prophet, the corrupt, rebellious, like off heart of the Hebrew guy who should have known what to do. And so I think they put it best in this little video. One of the things that Jonah is, it's a mirror. What the author's trying to get us to do is to kind of read the story and then partway through kind of be confronted with like, oh my God, oh, this Jonah guy, he's a tool, right? Like not listening to God, going a different way, but then it's supposed to turn on us and it's supposed to reveal to us in a mirror, wait a second, I'm Jonah. Like, hold on a second here. Like, we're Jonah, And I say we're Jonah because this is why Jonah, the short story, is in the Old Testament canon. It was for Israel, in their unfaithfulness to God, to remind them and call them back that God does love their enemies. And the heart work and the transformation needs to be done in them as a community. That as we read Jonah, it's a mirror, yes, to us as individuals, but to us as a community that say we follow God, gather on Sundays together, join in as the church, it's a mirror for us. And so that's, this is actually why we're doing this. Why, you may ask, like, why do we take certain times and places and spaces to go through things and be intentional with certain themes? Well, we went through Galatians earlier this year because, I don't know if you've noticed, COVID has kind of made things divided. <laughs> Anybody, you know, just a little bit, some of you, like, have family issues because of what's happened. Tons of issues, obviously, in church communities, and I think we've been pretty good. It's been fairly healthy, but 
you know, ideologies, uh, families being torn apart, different ways of thinking politically that's tried to bleed into the church, certainly in Canada, but I would even say most, more so to our brothers and sisters in the States. And so we came around this letter of Galatians at, at Easter time and kind of at the beginning of the year because the Bible has something to say about unity and us coming together as brothers and sisters with our differences. It has something to say about what actually freedom is. And now we actually kind of peer into Jonah because I think it's fitting for our moment now, right? All the deconstruction, can we just be honest? There's just a lot through COVID and the re-engineering of church and trying to get back together. There's just a lot of not so good things that have happened to the church, if you're with me. More at like uh, a church on a North American scale with major leaders falling left and right, abusive power left and right, all sorts of crazy stuff. But not only that, I can't go a week without bumping into people or seeing online a lot of church talk, right? What the church should do better, what the church needs to become, what the church should be doing in its future. And all of that, I'm into that talk. I think it's fine. I think we need to have those conversations. But ultimately, what I, seeing play, what I see playing out online is that one of the things we actually need is we need a mirror in front of us. It's so easy to kind of cast judgment and say this is what the church should be and this is what we should become and this is what's wrong with the church, but very few of us want to actually pick up a mirror and kind of look into it and see ourselves critiqued. And this is what Jonah does. This is why Jonah, I think, is more important now than ever because as we think about what the church should become, it has a lot to say. Just like God's covenant people in the Old Testament, and this letter in the canon for them to remind them of their calling to love their enemies, there's a calling here for us to read the story, to peer into it and go, oh, this is talking about me. I can, I can pass judgments on all sorts of people about how things should be and, and how they ought to be. But as I read this story and as we engage it over the next four weeks, five weeks together, it'll be an opportunity for us to go, oh, maybe this is speaking about my own heart that bends in so many directions my own expectations whatever it is for you you with me you okay all right so this is more than what you you think it hey like read this kid stories uh, the jonah stories to your kids fine great but um this is why this is my favorite is because at times we will laugh and go oh my goodness like this this is me at times we will be confronted just with Jonah's heart to escape and run from God. I, I actually welcome that over the next little while in some of our conversation. And even as we do this, it's intentional. As we do this around round tables, giving ourselves time to slow down and wrestle through this. You with me? And so, again, I joked about it. Um, it's just sad to me that Sometimes we love talking heads in the church, and I think we're at a moment where we're being shaken by this because all the talking heads are falling left and right, and that may be a good thing. Maybe the church needs to be more us, and certainly teaching and instruction and what I do and what some of us do up here is important. But more important is how this is going to play amongst us. And so I read on the internet, and I've read it before, obviously, that it takes eight minutes to read the story. And I thought, well, there's no better way now with a little, you know, 20 minutes of context under your belt of what the writer is trying to do. Will you take a minute 
And we're going to come to the tables in a minute, and we're at the tables, but we're going to come to the table and have communion, and we'll uh, close these summer Sundays with uh, worship together at the end. But you take a couple minutes, find one person just to fire it up on your phone, and we take a minute to read it. Is that all right? Or eight minutes? Or we'll give you ten minutes, how about? Take ten minutes. Just do something you would rarely do. Read a book of the Bible in one setting. Go for it. Go for it.